So Aaron and Brittany LaRue, who are part of the core team here at Harvest Church, uh, a few weeks ago they told us about a mystery that they solved. Something was getting into their dog food on the back porch in the middle of the night. They assumed that it was a raccoon, but they wanted to be sure, and so they set up one of those little spy cameras uh, that, that kept watch over the dog food the whole night. And the next morning when they watched the video, they saw the culprit, which was not a raccoon, it was a giant rat. And uh, with that, <laughs> that uh, propelled Brittany to do a little internet research on rat multiplication. And I don't know if Brittany's research came up the same as mine, but when I googled rat reproduction, here's what I found, that a single rat couple, deeply in love, <laughs> I assume, can reproduce into 2,000 rats in a single year. Yes. So the LaRue's acted swiftly and decisively, and I'm sure Aaron will be happy to share all the details of, of their escapades with the rat after church if you'd like to, uh, to ask about it. So be sure to ask Aaron. He, he actually kind of enjoys talking about it, I found. Well, that, that's an example of the worst kind of multiplication. Anytime that we talk about rats or roaches or spiders, things that multiply rapidly that we might lose sleep over, that's, that's the bad kind of multiplication. There is a good kind, though. Let's leave that behind. There's a good kind of multiplication that we actually find on the first page of the Bible. You don't need to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 1, on page 1 of the Bible, God, the first thing God says to, his, uh, to the people he made in his own image, to Adam and Eve, the very first thing he says to them, he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. And that carries the obvious connotation of have lots of kids, right? But there's a sense also in which we could take that command as, and make it into almost a commission for the Christian life. That God's desire for all of us, if we have received His transforming grace through Jesus, then God calls all of us to a life of fruitfulness and then multiplication. If we have come to know Christ, then we now get to live for Christ in such a way that our life becomes like ripples on a body of water. That when a rock lands, it doesn't create only a small um, indention into the water. It ripples outward now. And that's what the life of a person who loves Jesus becomes. That we have a life that impacts not just our own bubble and our own experience, but the lives of those around us and everyone we come into contact with. That's what God's created us for. Now, the prevailing view of our culture, our culture says that to have a, a rich and meaningful life, you simply need to do what makes you happy. Do what most fulfills you. In a sense, you can almost create your own meaning for life. And as long as you don't inflict harm on somebody else in the process, then that life is meaningful and valid. Do what makes you happy, just don't hurt anybody along the way. Uh, but that to me is bankrupt, ultimately. Because it doesn't concern the greater good the way that the Christian life does. The Christian faith says that vastly richer and more meaningful than the secular view, the Christian life says that we do not exist for ourselves. We don't live only to make ourselves happy and fulfilled. We actually live for the greater glory of someone else. In this case, our Savior Jesus. We live to His glory and we live to serve others for their maximum good. So whereas our culture is convinced that my maximum good is paramount and I should do whatever contributes to it, the Christian life says that your maximum good is paramount to me. Philippians 2 tells us... Uh, is that right? Philippians 2? Um, 
Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And in that way, you become more like Jesus Christ. And that's how you have a life that's meaningful. That's what it means to be fruitful and to multiply. And I believe that every single one of us can do that according to the grace that God has given us. You don't have to become a pastor or an overseas missionary to obey the simple call of God to be fruitful and to multiply. And so what do we mean when we say at Harvest Church, faith multiplies? What do we mean when we say that? Well, I'm going to let Jesus give us the groundwork for this from Matthew chapter 25. So if you're not already in Matthew 25, turn there now. Jesus is giving us a series of parables in Matthew 25 that all concern the coming of his kingdom. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. That ultimately Jesus is going to return to the earth, maybe tomorrow, solar eclipse, anybody. Um, he, it's possible he may come back tomorrow. I'm not preaching that. Um, I wouldn't count on it because we're not supposed to know when it's going to happen. But when Jesus does return, he tells us in parable form, he tells us what it's going to be like. He says, this is what it will be like when I come to return to, to establish permanent eternal rule. Verse 14, he says, for it is just like the kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one, he gave five talents to another two and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So if we stop there, the, the, the basic setup of the parable is simple. That there's a wealthy landowner, a person with much uh, to his name, and he leaves on a journey. He entrusts the weight of his possessions to his servants. And he gives them differing measures according to their own abilities with the expectation that while he's away, they will deal wisely with what he's left them. And of course, the first two servants, they go out and they multiply. They double what they were entrusted with. But the third servant hides his away in the dirt. He buries it in the ground. Now, that's face value what the parable says. But what the parable means here is, is also pretty simple. That we live in the time between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. Christ died on the cross for sins. God raised him on the third day. He ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Uh, we live in this in-between time that Jesus has promised a return in which he will establish his eternal uh, rule forever and ever. We're in this in-between place. And in the meantime, those who confess Jesus as Lord, we have been entrusted with his possessions, as it were. We have been given the Holy Spirit of God. We've been entrusted with the Word of God. We've been given Jesus' marching orders and his mission for the world and the Great Commission. And so now we have been called, in that light, we've been called to be fruitful and to multiply those things, what he's given us. And now there's two points we need to make here before we move on and, and the, the outcome of the parable. The first is this word talent. Because we have an English word, talent, that means natural ability. But that's not really the essence of what Jesus means when he uses this term. Talent in that in, in the time was a weight of something precious like silver usually that was worth a certain amount of money. It wasn't a natural ability. So if you can, uh, if you can ride a mean unicycle, I'd be impressed and I'd want to know how you pull that off because I don't think I could ever do that. But that's a, that's a great talent in our, in our understanding, but that's not what Jesus meant. 
Or if you said, you know, my spiritual gift is bowling. I can bowl a 240 with my eyes closed. That's great. I, again, I'm very impressed. That's about double what I can do. But that's not a spiritual gift. That's not what the talent here means. The idea of a talent is, is actually very simple. It's something that God entrusts to us. So the source of it is not from within me or from within you. It's something that God bestows that he entrusts to us that we will then use it to bring the glory to him. I'm, I'm going to quote uh, J.C. Ryle okay, on this because I think he frames it well. Ryle says, Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, all are talents. And then Ryle asks, whence came these things? Where'd they come from? What hand bestowed them? Why are we what we are? Why are we not the worms that crawl on the earth? There is only one answer to these questions. All that we have is a loan from God. We are God's stewards. We are God's debtors. And he says, let this thought sink deeply into your hearts. So anything good we have in our life is from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadow. That's what James told us. Everything good in my life comes from God and it's now to be used for His glory. Everything. Everything. And in that case, uh, bowling, right? We use that illustration. Bowling itself is a nice recreation, but ultimately not of any value. But if you actually used bowling as an opportunity to develop fellowship and friendship for uh, an opportunity, a platform to share the gospel and to model Christ for others, well, then you could, you could almost call that a talent in that case. Not the game itself, but you're using that as a platform for God's glory. And in that case, maybe we're onto something. Okay? Now, second, and this is important too, not everyone gets the same measure. We notice this in the parable. That God, the master, entrusted five, and then two, and then one. He didn't give the same to everybody. And, and, and God doesn't operate fairly in this case. He gives a measure, Jesus says, according to each one's ability. Now, Jesus doesn't go into detail as to what those abilities were or what made it. What made the five-talent person a five-talent person? It may have been that he was particularly sharp or responsible. There was something about his own ability that allowed him to steward more than somebody else. And in that case, God was dealing different hands to different people. Now, that's not unique to this parable. That's a truth for life. God deals everybody a little bit different hand um, in the sense that some people live very long and some very short. That's just the truth. Some, some people are super intelligent and others not so much. Some people are healthy all through their life, never go to the doctor, and other people have frequent ailments. Some people are born into wealth. Some people are born into poverty. Everybody is dealt a different hand in that regard. And the point of the parable is not, why does God give us differing measures? Jesus doesn't even bother to answer that question. It's not a matter of what God gives you. The point of the parable is, what do you do with it? Whether you're five or a two or a one, what do you do with what God has given you? So it's a question of faithfulness. The, the five-talent man was not more loved or more valued than the one-talent man. That's not, that's not the issue here. God didn't love one more than the other. He simply entrusted 
differing measures and expected the same amount of faithfulness. And so that's the point. Whatever God has given you to work with, whether a lot or a little, He now calls you to be fruitful and to multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. So what happens in the parable? Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. Jesus returns. He will return. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, in both cases, the servants doubled what they had been entrusted with, what they'd been given. And at the master's return, what happens? They are praised. They are given even greater responsibility. So their work wasn't done necessarily, but they are are now entrusted with more. You've been faithful in just a little bit. I'm going to give you responsibility over much. And it's for this reason that they're, they're unashamed when Jesus returns. You notice this? They're not cowering away, hoping that it was enough. They're eager to show him the produce of their labor. They say, see? See what I've done? They've lived a life that proved their devotion to him. They were not concerned when Jesus returned. There's a place in 1 John 3, I believe, that says we ought to abide in Christ so that at His coming we may have confidence and not shrink away in shame. The idea being that we we can live in such a way as Christians that when Jesus does return, we would be afraid because we have not lived to His glory with any intentionality and we would almost cower away. That's not what happens in this case. They're, they're grateful for the opportunity and they're eager to show Jesus what they've done and He looks upon them with delight. You get the sense here that the Master is beaming. He says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. The words we should all long to hear one day. Well done. Faithful. And He says, Enter into the joy of your Master. And that, that little phrase right there is immeasurably deep to me. But we can't even fathom what all that really means. When Jesus one day will look upon us, I pray, and say, enter into my joy. That's the commendation we get from Christ when He finds us to be faithful and fruitful. But that's not where the story ends. There's a part of me that wishes it was. Because now Jesus is going to turn His attention and give really most of His attention to that third servant. The first two very fruitful And they're given now more responsibility and joy in the presence of Christ. The third guy I see not so much. Look at verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. 
Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, The parable takes a harsh turn. It doesn't end uh, happy like we hope it would, especially for uh, man number three here. And you know, it's peculiar because the third servant didn't steal the talent. He didn't spend it. He didn't lose it. He simply buried it in the ground, and at the return of Christ, he dug it up and handed it back, right? No harm done, right? But the Lord's response here leaves no doubt. Regardless of how we might read this parable and maybe not see anything wrong with the situation here, listen to the Master's response to Christ who says, You are wicked and lazy. You will not enter into my joy. And the central thing that should stand out to us when we read this it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to listen to this man talk. The first two, the five-talent and the two-talent man, they come and they clearly understand the transaction that took place when they were entrusted these things because they've come with eagerness to present the produce of their work, of their effort. The third guy has no concept of what's going on here. It's very obvious that he doesn't know his master. I mean, you listen to what he says. He assumes things about God that are simply untrue. He says, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you do not sow. In other words, he says of God, to God, you are impossible to serve. Nothing pleases you. And you even take what isn't rightfully yours. You demand what doesn't belong to you. And so I was afraid of you. And I did nothing with what you gave me. Isn't that essentially what he's saying? See, this is the sad and terrible story of a person who confesses faith in God, but doesn't actually know God. And we need to be clear on this. This is not a man who knows his master. He doesn't know him. He doesn't understand who he is and what he's about, or even why he entrusted it to him in the first place. He didn't give it to him to hold on to it. Right? And so whereas this man, he's not focused on pleasing his master, he's only focused on pleasing and protecting and preserving himself. What's going to get me in the least amount of trouble? If and when he returns, he lives not to honor God. He, he actually does the opposite. You see him. He blames God for his problems. And we don't know why. Maybe it's because he only got one talent and he lived in envy over those who got more than he did. And so possibly out of a sense of almost um, uh, of, of an anger, like a petulant child, he went and buried it in the ground. One time we were raking leaves. Conroe, Texas, 1992. I, I, I had to guess. Raking leaves, my sister, my, my mom, dad, and me, she raked more than I did. She got a dollar fifty, and I got a dollar. And I was furious. And she worked harder than me. I just didn't want to admit it. I got a single dollar bill. I went upstairs into the bathroom, and I tore little bitty tears all around the edge of that dollar like fringe. I was too scared to tear it in half. I still wanted it. But I was trying, in this passive-aggressive way, I was trying to tear little pieces, you know, just to show how, how much uh, I deserved more. And then my dad caught me tearing the dollar up and spanked me. So it wasn't a good day for me. <laughs> Not a good day for me. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the motivation of this third man is. But it's obvious that he blames God for his circumstances. You're a hard man. You can't be pleased. And so I just buried it in the ground. And, you know, I used to read this parable, honestly, and feel kind of sorry for this guy. Thinking, well, you know, what, what he did didn't, didn't, doesn't seem all that bad. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He's acting from an evil heart. It's not just 
It's not just laziness or indifference. He says it's wickedness. And he strips this man's talent away from him and he casts him out. God has no mercy on this man at his return. You will not enter into my joy. Because the burying of that talent was an act of rebellion. He literally took all that God had given him and he covered it up in the dirt. He wasted it. And so if I could summarize this parable in just one little phrase, I would say, faith multiplies. That's our second core value as a church. That's something that we want to champion, a flag, a banner that we want to carry into battle every day that we're on this earth. Faith multiplies. A person who knows Jesus and who loves Jesus will be compelled to live a life of fruitfulness, of multiplication. A person who really knows the Master is going to, look, is going to live in a way that makes good use of His gifts to us. Faith multiplies. Now, let me make, I'm going to make two quick notes and then a quick personal story, and then we're going to close on this, okay? Um, when we say that faith multiplies, don't hear me say, get more involved in church activities. That's not wrong, but that's not the point, okay? Um, the goal here, and, and it's, it's often kind of a temptation for us in our little southern church culture that we have, that when I think about loving and honoring God, my, my immediate thought is, go get more involved at church, and again, that's not wrong, but I, I'm going to just tell you, at Harvest Church, uh, you, if you've been around, you've noticed this already, we don't have a lot of activities. We don't really have any programs. And by and large, moving forward, one day when we have more people and a bigger budget and maybe a more permanent building, we're still not going to have a lot of programs. Because my, com- my conviction is that programs and church activity do not create deep Christians. They can facilitate that, and by all means, those are good things, but they're no substitute for it. A person who's very, very busy with church may not actually be multiplying their faith at all. And so we're going to streamline what we do in such a way that when we call people to depth, when we call people to really walk with the Lord, we're not going to be just inviting them into church events. Because I just don't believe that's ultimately going to reach our goal of growing and multiplying disciples. So I'm not inviting you into more stuff. When I say faith multiplies. Remember the idea of a talent as Jesus says. He's he's basically saying anything that God has given you that can be used for his glory. And so there are wonderfully diverse ways to do this. One of the wonderful things about God. He doesn't give us only one formulaic way to honor him. We can honor him in all manner of ways. In the ways that we live. In the ways that we just the normal everyday stuff of life. the, The opportunities are always ripe. To do this. And so let me just give you, uh, if if you have a Christ-centered intentionality, then almost anything you do on a day-to-day basis can meet this vision of of a multiplying faith. I'm going to give you just a couple of quick little bits and pieces here, but you could have this conversation all day long, okay? If you own a home, or or if you live in a home, you don't have to own it, if you live in a home, uh, you have an automatic opportunity for mission. The Bible calls us to something called hospitality. Hospitality is where we intentionally welcome people into our lives, to our home, that we might showcase the gospel, that they might see and hear in us a life that is devoted to Jesus. If you have a home, then that is, in a sense, a talent that God has given you that can be used for His glory. If you have a spouse, 
You have a daily opportunity to sacrificially love, to submit to. It gives you an opportunity in the context of marriage, a showcase for the gospel of Jesus. It's an opportunity that's ever present for you. If you have kids, you have a hundred opportunities a day to be patient, to be gracious, to be forgiving, to love and teach and model and serve, to, to show your children what it looks like to know Jesus. If you have a job, if you have a school that you attend, you have an automatic mission field. Every single day you enter into an opportunity to showcase a life given to Jesus. When Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He meant, I believe, he meant that to be the everyday stuff of life. He wasn't just saying, go on a mission trip and therefore it will be so. Live your life in such a way that who you are, what you do, what you say, brings attention to Jesus. And, I, and I, when I say we could go on all day, I really mean that. I'm not going to. But you, there are countless ways God has given you. Whether you think you're a five-talent person or a one-talent person is irrelevant. He's given you countless opportunities to take what He's given you and to put it to use for His glory in the everyday stuff of life. And so the point is, if the grace of Jesus has transformed your life, then that faith will produce opportunity to be fruitful right where you are. And so we ought to be constantly asking ourselves these questions. And listen, this is true for Pastor York, Reverend York. I don't know what you call me. I don't know what y'all call me behind my back. It's true for me. It's true for me in the exact same way that it's true for a, a, a housemaker or a person who works at Starbucks or at the bank or an elementary school teacher. It's the exact same. We may not have the same talents. I don't know what God has given me relative to you. But it's the exact same principle. And we have to ask this question. What are the blessings and gifts and opportunities that God has given me today that he calls me to use for the sake of his glory? What are the gifts and opportunities God has given me today that ought to be for me like ripples on the lake? That my life could have that kind of multiplying impact? There is an answer to that question. We just might have to dig to find it, but there's an answer to that question. Second, when we say that faith multiplies, the most important function of that is what we call discipleship. It's not just doing good, being good, that somehow my life will, will count. Okay, that's true. But Jesus specifically calls us to make disciples, and in that way we multiply our faith. It's how we share the gospel. It's how we bring people into relationship that they might walk with Christ. When Jesus first walked along the seashore and invited his disciples to follow him, this is from Mark chapter 1, these men are out on the lake uh, fishing. Jesus calls out to them and he says, very simply, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. That Jesus, in, in the invitation to follow him, is a promise. You notice? It? There's a promise of multiplication. I'm going to make you fishers, not a fish, but of people. Now, Jesus could have said, I guess, he could have said, follow me and you'll have a blessed life. Follow me and you'll get to heaven. Follow me and I'll solve all your problems. He didn't say any of those things. He said, follow me and I will make it so that you bring other followers of me along. Follow me and I will make you a multiplier of followers, of disciples. So in other words, part of the reason, listen, part of the reason Jesus saved you was to get to somebody else. All right? Your salvation is not for your own sake only but for the sake of the people around you. Jesus never meant this to stop with you when Paul spoke to his protege Timothy 
In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul, in that case, has four generations of Christian in mind. Paul, to Timothy, to faithful men who will teach others. The expectation for Paul is that Timothy would multiply and that Timothy would carry that same expectation, that those whom he multiplies into would have a produce to show for their life as well. Now, this is a plain fact that every person in this room, somebody led you to Jesus. I don't know how it happened, and maybe it was many somebodies. But somebody or somebodies, they planted the seeds in your life that eventually bloomed and became trust in your heart for what Jesus came to give you through his blood. And, and that's someone who gave Jesus to you, who spoke Jesus to you in that sense. Uh, I'm sure you're grateful for that person. Maybe it was a parent or a grandparent or a close friend or a pastor, somebody, and you're grateful. But hasn't God called us to be that somebody for somebody else? Right? If somebody, if God had to use somebody to get to you, that's the way he set it up, then surely God would want to use you to get to somebody else. And there's, there's hardly a greater joy in the entire world than to be that somebody for another person. Um, here's my little story, very short. Some of you know this about me. Uh, I was discipled at Mississippi State University by a total stranger. Someone that I only met seemingly by coincidence one day at the Chapel of Memories. I know it wasn't a coincidence. It sure felt that way. It's a man named Randy Phillips. Not a fellow college student, but actually a man who was just a, a little younger than my own father. He was uh, in his late 40s, I think, at that point. But he became to me like a father in my faith. Um, Randy and I met almost every single week for two or three years. We studied the Word together. He taught me the Bible. We took walks around campus and caught up on life. He had me over multiple, multiple times to his home to enjoy dinner with his family. And he, Randy Phillips impacted me more than almost any other person I've ever known. Outside of my immediate family, perhaps he had the greatest impact on me of anybody I've ever known. And if you hang around here long enough, you're going to hear me talk about Randy quite a bit because his, uh, his impact on my life was that great. This October coming up will be four years since Randy passed away. He died of skin cancer. I think he was 56 years old. He was, he was still very young. Um, passed away October of 2013. When I went to his funeral in Starkville, his oldest son, James, stood and spoke. And at the funeral, he asked if everybody, would, if, if everybody who was ever personally discipled by Randy would please stand. And in that moment, I had the privilege of standing but so did a few dozen other men. A couple of dozen guys. It's pretty amazing. Randy discipled a lot of guys. Well, he had to sit down, and then James said, Now, if you have been discipled by somebody that Randy mentored, in other words, if you are a second-generation disciple of Randy's, would you please stand up? And then a couple of dozen guys stood again. And you know, as long as I live, I'll never forget that scene. I mean, right in front of me, faith multiplied. That I experienced it in my own life, but then I could see it on display. That here's a man who, like, ripples in a lake. That he, he rippled out about as far as anybody I've ever known. Randy was not a pastor. And sometimes people are surprised when I tell them that. He was not a pastor. He was not on the church payroll. He had no formal training. As far as I know, he had no master's degree. He was not wealthy. 
He was a normal guy who lived with his family in Tibby, Mississippi. That's a suburb of West Point, if you didn't know. Uh, Randy was not a man that the world esteemed as great. He was not great by any standard. Uh, I mean, if the world were to, to evaluate Randy, they might say he's a one-talent guy, honestly. But I'm so grateful, even if that is the case, that he was a one-talent man, I'm grateful he didn't bury that talent in the ground. Because I, I sure would not be standing here if he had. No, he took what God had given him, and he was fruitful, and he multiplied. He gave his life to the discipleship of others. And I thank God every day for him. Um, He's a man who spent his life to be fruitful and to multiply. And I stand here today to say there's absolutely no reason why we all can't be like that, why we all can't do the same. Now, your life will not turn out like Randy's did, and neither will mine. And that's not the point, remember? The point is, what has God given me today that I can take and be fruitful with? What has God given me today that if he, if he were to return tomorrow in the midst of the eclipse, if he were to return tomorrow, would I cower in the corner because I've lived a life of fruitlessness? Or would I, with, with a godly humility, would I say, look, see, you gave me this and now this. Because my life has been lived, not for my own glory, not for my own fleeting happiness, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for me. Let's pray about that. Father, we, we come to you right now. We acknowledge, I acknowledge, that this parable uh, scares me. I, you know, I don't think I'm the one-talent person in this case. Um, but I also recognize, Lord, that in my own life, I'm not as fruitful as I could be and as I should be. And Father, when, we, when, we, when I recognize that, Lord, and I suspect that all of us might feel that to some degree right now, that Father, you're, what, what you're telling us in the midst of that is, Lord, that your love for us is not dependent upon our effort. And please, Father, let this sink deeply into our hearts. Our ability to, to be fruitful and to, to multiply, our ability to obey your word and to make much of you in this world, Father, that is not the basis of our salvation. And help us, Father, to know that in the deepest place of our hearts. Our salvation is purely the gift of your grace given to us through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, don't let us mistake one for the other. My effort today does not save me and, and cannot save me more. Lord, I'm only saved by your grace. But Lord, on, on the heels of that, would you show us that that salvation changes us? That that salvation ought to, to, to motivate me? It ought to, it ought to give a burden to each one of us in our hearts that, that takes a look at what you've given to us. All your grace and blessing that takes a look and says, what am I doing with this? that honors you? What am I doing with this that, that, that will live on beyond me, beyond my own experience of you, God? Who else is knowing you and, and walking with you because of my life poured out? And Father, that is, that is a healthy question to ask. And so, Lord, we thank you that we are saved by no effort on our part. We simply receive. But I also thank you, Lord, 
that, that now you, you live with, a, with a, an expectation that we would not waste our lives. Father, we're, we're, not, we're not here to make ourselves happy and just try not to hurt anybody. We're here to glorify you and to live for the maximum good of the people that you give us the privilege to rub shoulders with. Lord, call us to more. Call us to more. And Lord, I pray that we would, we all in this room, we would live in such a way together that we'd be eager for your return. I, I pray, Lord, that, that it would not be my heart to, to want you to, to tarry, to wait, so that I can fulfill all my ambitions first. Father, I pray that we would have the kind of heart that says, Lord, come back. Come back. That we might hear, well done. And that we might just fall at your feet in gratitude. Lord, this only happens by your grace. You've got to fill us with your grace for us to produce anything in kind. And I pray, Lord, that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.